The story of uh, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego is, I would say, a timeless story of faith and virtue and courage. Um, It's the infamous account of, I like to call them the Hebrew three, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, of them being cast into the fiery furnace after their commitment to serve God and not serve the image of King Nebuchadnezzar. It's a striking story, a stirring story, but I think the ultimate uh, miracle of the story in Daniel 3 is not always evident when we first just read it and skim over it. To provide you a little bit of context of the story, though, uh, um, in the opening verse, if you go to Daniel chapter 1, we are told that Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, he came to Jerusalem and besieged it. He is surrounding the city of Jerusalem and assaulting it with his Babylonian forces. The year is around the late uh, 500s BC. And Jerusalem falls. And the spoils of this besiegement include people, especially young men, in whom showed great promise and potential. Listen to these verses from Daniel, the first chapter of Daniel's prophecy. Look at verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, that is, with some of the articles of the house of God, which he carried into the land of Shinar, to the house of his God. And he brought the articles into the treasure house of his God. Then the king instructed Ashpenaz, the master of his eunuchs, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking Gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace and whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldeans. So here they, you see they are identifying potential uh, students to come into the Babylonian culture and indoctrinate them, to assimilate them, to, yes, perhaps even brainwash them into the Babylonian lifestyle. It was believed that these uh, sort of noblemen, these young noblemen of Israel would enhance the Babylonian society so they could indoctrinate them uh, in the Babylonian way of life. And among these, of course, are Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. If you look at their names there, it's in verse 6, you'll find those names. We know them, of course, as Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They are quickly indoctrinated into the Babylonian philosophy and lifestyle, which is evidenced from their name change. If you look at that in verse 6, it says, Daniel 1.6, Now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them the chief of the eunuchs gave names. He gave Daniel the name Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach. And Azariah, Abednego. So here they are put into the training system that would indoctrinate them into the way of life of the Babylonians. This is a three-year program, it says. If you look at verse 5, And the king appointed for them daily provisions of the king's delicacies and of the wine which he drank, and three years of training for them, so that at the end of that time they might serve before the king. They're put into this new way of life, supposedly to rid themselves of all their Hebrew lifestyles and customs. And yet, if you notice, if you remember, Daniel and his Hebrew friends purposely resist and reject the Nebuchadnezzar's diet and design for them. You can find that story in verses 8 through 16 here. They do this 
Of course, to retain a semblance of their Hebrew identity, no doubt, but also, to, I think, to manifest their faith and fidelity to their God instead of the gods of the Babylonians. Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they end up challenging the king's men to a contest of sorts to see which regimen would result in fitter men, the Hebrews' regimen or the king's regimen. Listen to these verses. Look at verse 9. Now God had brought Daniel into the favor and goodwill of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord the king who has appointed your food and drink. For why should he see your faces looking worse than the young men who are your age? Then you would endanger my head before the king. So Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs had stood over Daniel, Hananiah, and Mishael, and Azariah, Please test your servants for ten days and let them give us vegetables to eat and water to drink. Let our appearance be examined before you, and the appearance of the young men who eat the portion of the king's delicacies, and as you see fit, so deal with your servants. So he consented with them in this matter, and tested them ten days. And of course, if you remember the story, after ten days, it's found abundantly clear that Daniel and his men are much fitter and healthier than any of Nebuchadnezzar's men. And from there, Daniel and the Hebrew three, so to speak, They excelled in all wisdom and literature. Look at verse 17. As for these four young men, God gave them knowledge and skill in all literature and wisdom. And Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. They were recognized for their incredible ability, for their incredible mental prowess and physical ability and appearance. And they are recognized by the king. Even look at verse 18. It says, Now at the end of the days, when the king had said that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. Then the king interviewed them, and among them all none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore they served before the king. Before the king, he said, he recognizes their abilities. He said, there's none like them found in all of Babylon. But see here, a special dose of grace has been given to these Hebrew refugees. Here, in a land that wasn't like theirs, in a land that was not anything like home. And God was with them and such that they excelled in all wisdom and understanding. And look at verse 20 because we find this incredible statement about their knowledge. It says, and in all matters of wisdom, verse 20, and understanding about which the king examined them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and astrologers who were in all his realm. Here, men who are not familiar with the ways of life of Babylon are found to be ten times more understanding than the supposed wise men of the city. So we see, even here, God was clearly with them. God was with these Hebrews, even in exile. And such is the setting, perhaps, of Daniel's most famous chapter, Daniel chapter 3, the infamous account of Nebuchadnezzar's golden image. If you read these 30 verses, you'll notice that Daniel does not appear at all in this narrative. Daniel is likely on an errand of King Nebuchadnezzar. He and the other Hebrew three were promoted by the king. And nevertheless, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they persist in the faithful stand for the God of the Hebrews. Look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Nebuchadnezzar the king made an image of gold whose height was 60 cubits and its width 6 cubits. 
He set it up in the plain of Dura, in the province of Babylon. He, Nebuchadnezzar, constructs this incredibly uh, enormous golden image, a statue likely of himself, some 90 feet tall, made entirely of gold. For reference's sake, if you go to Rio de Janeiro in Brazil and you look at the Christ Redeemer statue, that's about 125 feet So a similar image is constructed as sort of an imposing symbol of Nebuchadnezzar's might and authority and sovereignty and sway as the king. It's, I would like to say, even an emblem of his ego. Nebuchadnezzar certainly had what we would call a God complex. He saw himself as a deity and he's constructing this image of gold to have everyone recognize that he is one who should be worshipped. He is one who should be recognized as a god. Such is why in the next couple verses we have this incredible show of extravagance. Look at verse 2. And King Nebuchadnezzar sent word to gather together the satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. So... The satraps, the administrators, the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the officials of the provinces gathered together for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. And they stood before the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then a herald cried aloud, To you it is commanded, O peoples, nations, and languages, that at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music... You shall fall down and worship the gold image and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. You'll notice that there's this repetitive nature of these verses that just seems to be droning on. But in that repetitive sort of monotony, I think we get exactly sort of the extravagance that that King Nebuchadnezzar was making of this event. He wanted it to be a showy event, event which would, yes, perhaps unite his nation, his kingdom, his domain politically and religiously. But it's also, of course, I think mainly to see Nebuchadnezzar as a god. It was, ex- it was an emblem, a symbol of his excessive pride and arrogance. And such is what he lays down in the ultimatum of worship. Listen to verse 6. And whoever does not fall down, whoever does not ascribe to my way of worship, whoever does not worship me, whoever does not fall down and worship, shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So at that time, when all the people heard the sound of the horn, flute, harp, and lyre, and symphony with all kinds of music, all the people, nations, and languages fell down and worshipped the gold image which King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. His ultimatum of immediate incineration in a burning, fiery furnace is meant to incite and inspire worship. Not the type of worship that we want. This is fear, not worship. This is not reverence at all. It's, again, pointing to King Nebuchadnezzar's ego. But as the time of a worship approaches, of course, if you remember the story, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they deny this decree and they don't fall down. They do not worship the king's image. And a group of Chaldeans, we'll call them tattletales, They tattle on the Hebrew 3. Look at verse 8. 
Therefore, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and accused the Jews. They spoke and said to the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, psaltery, and symphony with all kinds of music shall fall down and worship the gold image. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. There are certain Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have not paid due regard to you. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you have set up. These little tattletales, these little snitches we might even say, they tell on the Hebrew 3. They say they're not following your commands. They are not following your orders. These are the same group of men who have already been upstaged several times over by these Hebrew uh, hostages. If you remember from verse 1, they are favored, or chapter 1, excuse me, they are favored by the king above, ten times above anyone else in the whole realm. And if you remember from chapter 2, where Daniel is able to interpret the king's dream, and they are not, they are stumped by it. They are unable to interpret that dream, and yet Daniel is able to. And then if you remember at the end of chapter 2, Daniel and his Hebrew 3 are promoted. Look at that verse in verse 48. This is Daniel 2, verse 48. Then the king promoted Daniel and gave him many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and chief administrator over all the wise men of Babylon. The wise men are these Chaldeans. Also, Daniel petitioned the king, and he set Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego over the affairs of the province of Babylon, but Daniel sat in the gate of the king. So, obviously, you can imagine. These supposed wise men and uh, counselors of the king who for so long have given him wise advice and sage advice and he has listened. Are now being upstaged at every turn by these Hebrew refugees. Of course they hated him. And so now they are seeking this opportunity. This perhaps being the last straw of all of this. And now they got them. They catch them red handed so to speak. They are not following the key, the king's decrees. They are not obeying his orders of worship. So they snitch on them. And look at verse 13. This obviously does not sit well with Nebuchadnezzar. Look at what it says. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. He's naturally just extremely angry by this news. Who would dare defy me? Who would dare challenge my authority? So he brings them before him. And look at verse 14. Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying to them. Is it true Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. That you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up. Now if you are ready at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre and psaltery. And symphony with all kinds of music. And you fall down and worship the image which I have made good. But if you do not worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning fiery furnace. And who is the God who will deliver you from my hands? You notice that he is claiming authority over their lives. He is inserting himself as a God again. I can destroy you, he says. 
But you notice too, in these verses, again, it's showing Nebuchadnezzar's favor of these Hebrew three. He's giving them a second opportunity. He's giving them another chance. He's giving them another chance to worship himself. If you just do this, I'm giving you another chance to bow so I don't have to throw you into that furnace. But even with that threat, that threat of worship, (laughs) the Hebrew three do not obey. They do not acquiesce to his demands for worship and it would be that threat falls on deaf ears. Look at verse 16. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. If that is the case, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. But if not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the gold image which you have set up. Imagine this defiant resistance, this defiance in these Hebrew refugees. As here, they are brought before, perhaps at this moment in time in mankind's history, the greatest monarch in the world at this point, And they are resisting him to his face. They are not obeying. Faced with certain death by way of incineration in a burning fiery furnace. What did they determine? These Hebrew three determined that God's glory is what matters most. Not their own lives. Not the glory of the supposed deity. He says we have no need to answer you. You aren't over us. We don't answer to you. We don't need to explain ourselves. Least of all to you, O king, because we answer to God alone. You notice in in this defiance that they reassert that their lives are controlled by God. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar had wanted to insert himself as a God of their lives. And notice they say that it doesn't matter what you threaten us with. God can deliver us. He can do that. He, can, he is more powerful than you could even imagine. You could throw us in there and he is so powerful he could deliver us out of that fire. And even if he doesn't, even if he allows us to be burned up, he is still our God. And we will still bow to him alone, not to you, not to your golden image, not because of anything that you threaten us with. We serve God alone. The God who can deliver us. And even if he doesn't. He is still our God. What courage. I'm always left in awe by these verses. By the courage of these Hebrew three that's on display here. With certain death right in their face. They say God. His glory matters most. So as you can imagine. Nebuchadnezzar doesn't take this too well. (laughs) He is not one to be defied, let alone to have his deity be called into question. Notice verse 19. Then Nebuchadnezzar was full of fury. An expression on his face changed towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And he spoke and commanded that they heat the furnace seven times more than was usually heated. 
He no longer favors these Hebrew guys. Whatever uh, insights and wisdom and knowledge and understanding they had displayed, which had won his favor, which had won him over, that's gone. His face changed towards them, and he wants to make a show of them. For all of their resistance and refusal and rebellion, he wants to make sure everyone sees just how in control and authoritative he is, just how godlike he is. So he heats up the furnace seven times more than it's usually heated. He wants these rebels eviscerated on the spot. And again, they're calling into question his godhood. They're not just ignoring a a command of a king. They're attacking his deity. They're attacking the idea that he is God. Three Hebrew refugees are challenging his godhood. So he could not stand for this, obviously. Obviously, Nebuchadnezzar had to do something. He couldn't let his deity be called into question like this. So watch. Verse 20. And he commanded certain mighty men of valor who were in his army to bind Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and cast them into the burning, fiery furnace. Then these men were bound in their coats, their trousers, their turbans, and their other garments, and were cast into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. Therefore, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of fire killed those men who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell down, bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. He gets these mighty men of valor. Tie them up. Throw them in just as they are. Throw them in and let's make a show of them. And surely their fate is sealed. The Hebrew three are not only being thrown into a fiery furnace. They're being bound in chains and fetters in that furnace. And this furnace, you have to imagine the scene, is raging so hot and so furiously that it consumes Even the mighty men who threw them into the flames. Did you catch that? It's always the most intriguing intriguing detail of this text for me. Is that the very men who were going up into the mouth of that furnace to throw in these rebels. They themselves are caught up in the flames. They themselves are burnt. And here is the miracle. Look at verse 24. Then King Nebuchadnezzar was astonished, and he rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound into the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. And he said, Look. He answered, I see four men loose, walking in the midst of the fire, and they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Here, Nebuchadnezzar He peers in through the door of the furnace and he is astonished. He is speechless. He is stupefied by what he sees. Because not only are Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego walking around loose as if they have been unbound from those very ties which the men have tied them up with. There is a fourth figure in the flames. The king is so speechless, he calls for uh, them to come out. Look at verse 26. Then Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, 
Servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire. They emerge. And they emerge from flames which had just before uh, eviscerated the men who had just thrown them in. And here they walk out of the furnace. They walk out of the flames. And not only are they not dead, they are not even harmed. Look at verse 27. And the satraps and administrators, the governors, and the king's counselors gathered together. And they saw these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not even singed, nor were their garments affected, and the smell of fire was not on them. A miracle to the furthest limits of, uh, of miracles that we could ever imagine. Not only did they emerge from these flames, they emerged unharmed. They emerged as if they have never been thrown into a furnace at all. Uh, the, I've shared this testimony with you, but I'll share it with you again. One of the weird things I had to get used to when I moved to Pennsylvania was the concept of burning trash. That wasn't something I was familiar with. I never sat down and thought about the trash men who come up and pick up my trash cans before. But lately I've been thinking about that because there's no trash men that come and pick up my trash. So I've had to burn my trash. Entirely new concept. You can call me a city slicker. That's fine. But I wasn't used to that. So I've been burning trash, this new reality for me. And if you've ever been around a fire, a campfire of any sorts, you just be around that fire. And your clothes smell of smoke. They're just riddled with it, as if you had actually been in the flames yourself. They smell so much like smoke that it's hard to get rid of it. You have to go inside and wash it because it's not even easy or comfortable to be around. And I always think about that. When I think about this story. Because you can sit around a campfire. Roasting marshmallows or what have you. And you go inside. And you just are, you have that stench of smoke. And yet these three Hebrew men. Were thrown into the very middle. Of a hot burning fiery furnace. And they don't even smell like smoke. The hairs on their head. Weren't even singed. The, the cords that bound their hands. They had been burnt off. And yet they themselves were not harmed. This is an incredible display of the miraculous power of God over his children. Over his presence with those who claim to believe in him. He is with them in the middle of this furnace. And he delivers them out of it. In such miraculous fashion it leaves everyone in audience speechless. They cannot even make sense of this moment. And it moves Nebuchadnezzar so greatly. Look at verse 28. Nebuchadnezzar spoke. Saying blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego. Who sent his angel. And delivered his servants who trusted in him. That they have frustrated the king's word. And yielded their bodies. That they should not serve nor worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or language which speaks anything amiss against the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be cut into pieces and their houses shall be made an ash heap because there is no other God who can deliver this, deliver like this. 
Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the province of Babylon. Another promotion. You have to see that even as he is calling out that there's no equal like the God of these Hebrew refugees. That this God is more powerful than any that he has ever come come across. This is sadly not an act of repentance on Nebuchadnezzar's part. If you read in Daniel chapter 4, that's exactly what you find out. He has not repented. He has actually just added this God into the great lineage of all the other gods that he claims to worship. Including himself. (laughs) Even though this extremely powerful moment has occurred. Nebuchadnezzar still doesn't recognize this God as his God. It's an incredibly familiar story. One that has this incredible uh, moment of deliverance. An incredible moment of and a miracle which delivers these three out of the flames. Even still, I don't think that that's the greatest miracle of this story. Because I think the ultimate miracle of the furnace is only realized, again, when you turn your attention to Nebuchadnezzar's uh, exclamation at the sight of the fourth figure. Again, go back to verse 25. He is confused in this moment. There's, there were three that we cast in there. And now there appears to be a fourth. He says, I see four men loose. And they're walking around in the middle of the fire. And they are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. I want to unpack that last phrase because I think it's important. You have to notice, Nebuchadnezzar is not saying that he thinks that this looks like the Son of God. I think that's actually a, a kind of a fault of the translators because they don't want you to miss the point of what's happening. They don't want you to miss what they think is happening here. They wanted you to not gloss over this scene. It's better translated, Nebuchadnezzar here is saying he looks like a son of the gods. More like he appears like a heavenly figure, a divine, otherworldly visitor has come and visited these Hebrews in the furnace. Nebuchadnezzar is not saying that Jesus was with them in the flames. Except that, I believe that that's exactly who was with them in the flames. I don't think Nebuchadnezzar was ascribing to that. But I think that the translators of your text of scripture, they don't want you to miss the point. It's not just a heavenly being. It's not just a person who has the form of the son of the gods. This is the son of God. And he is here in the middle of this furnace. In the middle of an exile in Babylon. In which they rightly deserve. These Hebrews are visited by who else than the son of God himself. Jesus Christ the Lord. In the middle of these flames. This is what we call in the theological world a Christophany. Which is just a big word, which means an appearance or manifestation of Christ before his incarnation and after, or uh, before his incarnation and or after his ascension. You can see other examples of Christophanies all throughout the scriptures. For instance, the man whom whom Jacob wrestles with in Genesis 32 is often believed to be the Son of God. Or the man who appears to Joshua in Joshua chapter 5 is often believed to be the son of God. Or the light 
The light which gives way to the appearance of the resurrected Jesus on the Damascus road that appears to Saul, of course, is what we would call a Christophany. An appearance of the Son of God after the ascension, or in the other cases, before his even incarnation. If you go through the Old Testament, you'll notice, especially in some texts of Scripture, this is noted by an inscription which calls him the angel of the Lord. And here, I believe with all of my heart that this fourth man is Christ himself who was with these Hebrews in the middle of the flames. In the middle of this furnace, he condescended to their torment and delivered them out of it. Such is the greatest miracle of this story. That Christ himself enters into the flames of those he loves, of those who are his, to deliver them out of those very same flames. He delivers them. And such too is the tremendous meaning of this story. Because you have to see, every point of, uh, every uh, passage of of the scriptures, I believe, often has two meanings. One, a historical meaning. It's just a a retelling of events that actually happened. Here's the story, here's the narrative, here's what actually happened. When you read the account of the the Israelites crossing the, the Red Sea on dry ground, it's an actual historical event. But there's also a deeper, more incredible meaning because every story is meant to show us the Redeemer. It's meant to show us Jesus. It's meant to show us that a greater exodus from sin is going to come. That a greater deliverance from a furnace is going to come from his hands. From the Son of God's hands. It's meant to show us the type of Savior that we have. Every passage of Scripture Is meant to show us what God does in mankind's story. But also what our Savior is like. So here in Daniel 3. We're shown this incredible portrait of a Savior. Who stands in the middle of a burning fiery furnace with us. And not only that. He's a Savior who takes on the penalty of the furnace that is meant for us. In order to deliver us to peace and safety. He's a Savior who is gracious. Who rescues us from the flames and the furnace of damnation. In order that we might drink in the cool flow of his mercy. He descends into this furnace in order to snatch us out of the grip of hell and condemnation. And that we might stand in his protective shadow. This is his work for us. The work of Jesus on our behalf. The work of the deliverer of every sinner who is in the flames already. Remember what Jesus says in John chapter 3. He says, I have not to come to condemn the world. But that the world is already condemned. His mission was one to free us from condemnation. Just like these Hebrew three. Free us from the furnace. To deliver us from the flames of eternal damnation. And he does so. 
By taking on the flames in his own body. By bearing all the sufferings of our sin on himself on the cross. And his deliverance from sin is so great. As it says in Hebrews chapter 7. That his salvation is so to the uttermost. That when we are delivered we don't even smell like smoke. That we don't even have the stench of sin on us anymore. See, the gospel declares that to us. That when we believe in Jesus Christ, when we put our faith in the, reconcil- in the reconciliatory death of Jesus, that that faith and that blood washes us from sin. So we don't even smell like sin anymore. It's so complete that we don't even smell like sin. Instead, we have the sweet aroma of his righteousness. Because of this deliverer from the flames. The son of God who enters our fiery realm in order to save us and redeem us and remake us to make everything new. This is the announcement of the gospel. It's one of peace and pardon and remission of sins. Why? Because there's a fourth man in the flames that is with us. And he is with us even now. It's the good news of the one who stood in the flames with us. And it's the same one who hung on the cross for us. And he's not just like a son of the gods. He is the son of God. Who has come for us. Who has come to save us from our sin. Who has come to redeem us from all iniquity. Who has come to free us from condemnation. So that we can declare along with the Apostle Paul in Romans 8 verse 1. That there is therefore now no condemnation for them who are called according to his purpose. To him who are the sons of God. The good news declares that. That his deliverance is such that we are free from condemnation. Free from guilt and free from sin. To such a degree, again, we no longer smell like sin. We smell like righteousness. I'll, I'll go back to those verses I read last week. They are so precious to me. Even as I've reflected on them for a week over. Colossians chapter 3. Verse 3. Says for you died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. And what does that mean? It means that when Christ who is our life appears. Then you also will appear with him in glory. His deliverance makes it to where when he appears. He is representing you. You are represented in the son of God. The son of God who came and died and then was resurrected and ascended. And is now ever making intercession for you and I. He's the savior, the deliverer, the one who comes in the flames and who delivers us out of the flames. This is, I would say, the miracle of this furnace. Is that God doesn't leave us to wallow in condemnation. He comes and meets us in the middle of it. And he delivers us out of it. This is the good news. Let us pray.